Welcome to Ogilaf Nanagus. Conversations on Irish mythology. With the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. Stories of Shebeg. The Burial of Fionn. A story. Out of the acrid smoke, the red flames rise, bright in the damp air of the early winter night. The grim faces of those who tend the fire are shrouded, shadowed red in the flickering smoke light. Then a young man stands suddenly tall. There on the misty horizon, in the space between the two hills, the sign has come. There, there is a pinpoint of red light, an answering spark from the terraced western hill. The men leave their task to join him, and together they wait, expectantly looking to where the distant flame is established. There, the red spark now shines golden. Oh, they will come. They will take the path from the great she-hill. Then, at the edge of hearing, the sound begins, a slow, muffled beating of skins, and carried on the night wind, the high keening of many women. The pinpoint of light is growing, elongating, and before long it resolves into clusters of torches, a pathway of stars strewn across the pasture land between the hills. They're getting closer. Slowly the procession of torches winds its way up the smaller of the she-hills towards the Great Cairn, gateway between the worlds. Tonight is the first of winter, the night of Samhain. Tonight the ways between the worlds will be open. Tonight their dead chieftain will be given back to the old ones, to the people of the hollow hills. Tonight his body will be laid in the cairn built by the ever-living ones in the days of dreaming. Oh, he will be honoured by the old ones, as he has been honoured by his own people. He will be honoured as a great warrior. He will be honoured as a man of wisdom, of poetry, of understanding. For he was a fair one, this warrior, a man of fair beauty, of mind and body. He will be remembered, honoured as a fion of a man, worthy to be remembered as one with that great hero of the Fianna. He was Fion come again. And Fionn will come again. He will be laid in his resting place between the worlds. And Shebeg will remember him. Hello and welcome to another Ogle of the Nagus special. Today we're talking about the lovely hill of Shebeg. We've chosen this one because this is the hill where we live. And it's a great hill with, oh, it's got so many legends and stories. And in fact, I started off with an imagined story that might cover some of the legends of Shebeg, which we'll tell you about during this uh, podcast episode. So it, right in the middle of South Leitrim. South Leitrim. And there are two hills, one called Shemur and one called Shebeg. That's the big fairy hill and the little fairy hill. Now, the big one's pretty obvious. Yeah, For pretty anybody big. who knows it, it looks a little bit like Glastonbury Tor. It's a, it's a terrace drumlin hill. And on the top, it has a, oh, it has a whole landscape of mm. cairns and uh, field monuments, all prehistoric film, field mo- monuments. And but, of course, it, what's most visible is that there's three cairns on the top and the middle one sports a wonderful shiny concrete cross, which is floodlit at night. <laughs> 
so it, it, it's a bit of a local landmark. It is, say. but people say they love it because yeah. they say it's friendly. Well, it, it still acts as a beacon, you know. I mean, a lot of people go on about the sort of the beacon fires of the great hills around Ireland. And it is, it's a marker point. It and it's, it's a modern beacon. And it was, uh, actually, the cross was set up in 1950, in the Marian year of 1950. An American man, uh, I think he uh, paid for it in perpetuity in memory of his wife. Yeah who obviously had some connection with the area. Yeah. And once in a while, it's really odd, because when you get very low cloud, and uh, this cross lit shining up into the sky, but when you get this really low, heavy cloud, suddenly the light will sort of reverse and reflect on certain low clouds. Mm. So what you actually see is a sort of great black uh, sword up into the sky, oh, which yeah. is quite amusing. Yeah. <laughs> Not making any meaning by it. It just no. is there, but it's quite fun. So that's about two miles down the road is Shemoor, uh, but here we are in Shebeg. Shebeg is, uh, you wouldn't notice it was a hill, although one description <laughs> I have, it said it creeps aggressively on <laughs> Shemoor, which I think is a bit over the top. Um, yeah, the, the way that you used to describe it, which I always found very amusing, is that Shemoor is not that much taller than Shebeg, but the ground around it is lower down. <laughs> Well, that's true. Yeah. And uh, Shebeg, which is only about 479 metres high, uh, but it, 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 the ground around it slopes very slowly. Yeah, so it's it, they're roughly equal in terms of well, being above sea level. a bit bigger. Yeah, Shemore is a bit bigger. A bit right? bigger. But yeah, the, the landscape around is not, it doesn't have such Oh, it looks drop. wonderful sometimes, yeah. though, when you get the uh, um, the mist rising mm. out of the ground and suddenly Shemore and even Shebeg look as though they're surrounded by a sea of glass. Oh, Oh, yeah. Especially at sunset when it's coloured pink. And sunrise as well. I've got some great Lemon photographs. Lemon yellow and pinks. Yeah. It is very, very beautiful. Mm. So you've got these two hills connected by name and connected by legend. Mm. There's also, because they're, it's, it's uh, limestone country, so mm. there are also always tales of uh, souterrains or tunnels that go through the yeah. hills. There's supposed to be a tunnel that goes across and underneath Shebeg, going down to Loch Skur, where once there was a, a castle of someone called John the Gan, oh, yeah. John the Head, who yeah. used to have an island there and cut off his enemies' heads and throw them into the lake, which is why he was known as John the Gan. <laughs> of course. Quite irrelevant to this. <laughs> that was sometime in sort of uh, supposed to be in about the 17th century, mm. so quite irrelevant to what we're talking about. Of course, this, it's also mentioned in possibly the only song in existence about Leitrim. Well, certainly it would be one of the best known songs. It's a horrible song. <laughs> and always annoyingly misunderstood. It's called... Yes. It, Lovely Litrum. Well, I call it Lovely Litrum, but you would the pronounce proper properly. pronunciation is Lovely Litrum. Yeah, three so, syllables in each word. Yep, that's hard. But because <laughs> it, one of the verses goes, I passed Shemur, that fairy hill where the flowers wildly grow, and I saw the grave of Fionn McCool where the Shannon waters flow. And to this day, mm. you find uh, maps in Carrick on Shannon, which is a county town just down the road from here, which tell you that the, the burial of site of Fionn McCool was on Shemur. Where Which is total no, rubbish. That's a misunderstanding because, of course, what the song says I've is passed that you've, Shemore. you've passed Shemore. You've passed Shemore. So it's the next thing The next see. fairy hill yeah. is where... And that leads us on to the next bit of our, our legend, of course. There's a very strong local tradition that Fionn McCall himself was yeah. buried on the top of that hill. And uh, we'll talk about that a bit more later. Mm. There's uh, There were quite a few houses on Shemore and have been, if you go she back beg. to... Oh, sorry, on Shebeg. No, there aren't any houses on Shemore. No. There never have been. no. Um, but she begs. She begs always been yeah, sort of quite densely populated at one point. You know, it was. Yeah. Now, how many? What was it? Was it? Um... It was about what eighteen families down in Gorva, which is the 
or Garva, which is at the, the bottom of the hill. Yeah, I think there were supposed to be around 50 people living up on that townland at one point. Yeah, on the actual townland. Um, but was. that's, we're talking about the 19th century, yeah, yeah. when things were a little bit more, uh, before 1847, when things were mm. more, well, things were still more populated. There's still quite a number of ruins there. Mm. There's one, uh, there's one which is completely wrecked, and my daughter, when she was young, used to call it her secret garden, mm. and go rushing off to it, and this old wall garden with just a ruined house. Yeah. And so it became as known as Rhiannon's Secret Garden. Yeah. But in fact, I was talking to an old man whose grandfather had lived up there, and he's telling me about the house. And he goes, "Yeah, well, you know, but what I've heard is he never shut his front and back door. Mm. He kept them open day and night, summer and winter, because he said a fairy path went right through the house and it wasn't safe to close it." Yeah, it's a common enough belief in rural Ireland. It could there's all kinds of things that you could attribute it to. All I know is that uh, when I was living just up the land here and in a mobile home, that it caused great problems because it was on a bee line. And so bees would come flying in the front door and had no way to continue going because, of course, <laughs> they've just always gone the same straight line. So then, so bees are fairies. So yeah, then you have to have the back, uh, a back window open yeah. so that they can keep going. So you know, there were quite a lot of uh, old stories about how dangerous it was to mm. interfere with these places, or um, uh, for instance, or to cut down a fairy thorn, oh, or yeah. to move stones on a hill. Yeah, I've actually have met people who say that houses were actually abandoned because a relative moved a stone or chopped yeah. down a fairy thorn and we won't talk about what happened to the rest of the fort in the old fort of Chandra, which means yeah. old fort, yeah. where it was townland. In fact, I have a stone in my hearth. Yes. Now that is an interesting story because when I came to look at the house, which was more than 20 years ago, the woman of the house said to me, whatever you do, she said, just never move this stone. It's a big stone that's sort of cut into the hearth. Yeah. And uh, I said, why? What, what, what does it do? She, oh, she said, you know, it protects the house against the blessed sickness. Yeah. Now, I thought I knew what the blessed sickness was, but I asked her. She said, oh, you know, she said, falling down, foaming at the mouth. Now, I knew she was talking about epilepsy, but that meant the same thing as generally madness yeah. or being away with the fairies. So yeah, it can... to have this stone here mm. protected the house against um, other world influence. Yeah, and that, that can be any kind of, you know, neurological or intellectual disability really you know that it was seen as a curse on the family there is an old story that uh, if you want to build a house and this is an old house if you want to build a house you put a hearthstone down mm. and if it hasn't been turned after yeah. a week then it's safe to build the house so it's really it's an old form of planning permission it really, really is, is what in, you're looking at your neighbors would if they wanted you they yeah. wouldn't move the stone exactly but yeah it, it it gave a kind of you know consensus so that if people didn't want a house built there they could go in the middle of the night and turn over the stone and everyone would agree that it was the fair reason so it was a bad bad place to build so it really is it's kind of mm. consensus planning permission mm. there was in fact a house nearby here we're only talking about this last generation this living memory living yeah. memory yeah where um the family had six daughters with uh, intellectual disability yeah and, uh, in fact, the house and farm was abandoned. Yeah, because they saw it as a curse as a result of having done something they oughtn't have, whatever that yeah. was. They're not necessarily going to talk about it, but there is still that sense and that belief. It is within living memory. Yeah. Oh, I've still got the stone. Of course. I've still yeah. got the stone. And so far, I don't think we've... I don't think the house has been cursed. I don't think that anyone's <laughs> been stolen away. Not that we know of, anyway. Mind you, I do get slightly offended. I came yeah. across a quote by... Um, it's a man called O'Hart. This will be from the 19th century. Mm. And he maintains that maybe the sites have survived because of the ignorance of, of local course. people. And he goes, As the uneducated entertainer belief transmitted down by tradition from time to time immemorial that it, that it is unlucky to meddle with them. And he's talking about cares, cares. here. Mm. 
and that any intermeddling with them is always followed by some misfortune, this childish fear, coupled with a proper feeling of veneration for antiquities, has fortunately preserved from destruction those interesting memorials of remote ages. Oh, as such a... <laughs> now, it may be true that we've got a load of archaeology. Yeah, but, but it's, it's, it's such a, t- a typical attitude, though, you know, that, of course, people who don't have university degrees are therefore uneducated, and that it's this kind of, you know, instinctual... It's so interesting he uses the word childish belief in in these kind of curses and so on, and, of course, that veneration and so on. But, you know, these are part of a tradition, and the tradition says that this place is important, and so you shouldn't interfere with it. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, it has somehow miraculously and fortunately preserved the site so that archaeologists can then come along and uh, dynamite the tops of them. Uh, yes. <laughs> Which has happened in more than one place, including Shebeg, and yeah. we'll go on to that in a minute. Yeah. Because I think I want to talk next about, let's say, what we know about the cairns exactly, on yeah. Shemor and Shebeg. What we've got is a, a complex uh, of um, burial cairns and field systems and sheepfolds, uh, all dating from the Neolithic period, around yeah. 3000 BC-ish. Yeah, it, it, easily. You know, it's very hard to get precise dates, of course, once you go back that far, but they are easily from yeah, that Yeah, they're era. definitely Neolithic yeah. anyway. And uh, most of them are on the bigger hill, Shebeg. Shemore. Shemore. <laughs> I say Shebeg. The most important hill is Shebeg. Yeah. But the bigger, the bigger hill one. is Shemore. is a beautiful hill, which sort of fades away like a hog's back one end and is sharp the other end. And, mm. and then uh, Shebeg is a smaller hill that... Um, Creeps up on you a bit more, I think. You know, it does. It's not, not as dramatic, let's say. No, it, it's lower, yeah. but it actually isn't that much lower. It just it just doesn't rise so suddenly, mm. and it's also much more populated. Whereas yeah. she she more rises yeah. out of the land unpopulated since Neolithic times. Yeah, yeah, and now only really used for um, sheep and yes. cattle and the old massive white bull a few years ago <laughs> looked like something out of the toy. You know, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. <laughs> now she beg, which some people describe as being like a sort of bump with a gooseberry on the top. Yeah, or a grapefruit. Is the other one, you know, yeah, I, don't know I think it looks f- a bit like a shoe brush. What's with the fruit? I don't know. <laughs> well, it's because, as I say, it's a yeah. slow hill, yeah, and it's fairly well populated all over mm. the hill, or used to be, as mm. I said earlier on. Now, um, they're, they're, it's supposed to be one of the outliers of the Shimor complex. There, there definitely is, there's a Neolithic complex of some kind all over this area. I mean, it's it's part of the difficulty with trying to, you know, preserve an archaeological site because there's now much more of a thought of the archaeological landscape. Mm-hmm. And that definitely applies here. But well, there's supposed to be more, I mean, what was it? More the... Neolithic monuments in Leitrim than any other county in Ireland. Yeah, somebody, who was it? It was, um... it was quite one of those later 19th century surveys. Oh, that's surveys. right. Oh, the Reverend Joseph Meehan, mm-hmm. writing in the Royal Society of Antiquities of Ireland, points out, Leitrim contains more rust, forts and giants' graves than perhaps any other county in Ireland. So plentiful are they that the cresset fires might be readily flashed in a double or treble chain all the way from the Bandoras, besides Bandoran, to Schliemannaren and Drumshamba. You know, obviously it was it, it is covered in them, yeah. basically. Um, now, the, the thing is that the Kenonchi bag, of course, is the special one. Yeah. Because that one was supposed to be the burial site of Phil McCool. It's still thought of. It goes back a very film. long way. Just, we'll come to talking about film mm, call a bit more later on, I think. But, yeah. um, but because of that association, that kind of did encourage 
people at the beginning of the 20th century to start to look at it archaeologically. Well, in fact, before that, back in the 18th century, mm. the local family, the Reynolds yeah. from Letterfine, they were the sort of county family at the time, mm. the rulers of the Matranas from Leitrim, but they um, decided to put up a gigantic monument yes. of Fionn McCool up on the top of the cairn. Yeah. It was supposed to be absolutely huge, and but it, it fell down in a storm at the beginning of the... 19th century mm. and they built it up again and then it then it came it down, down again the second time, yeah. and uh, its remains were said to have been seen as late as 1818 yeah and it was marked as a monument on the maps when i came here 20 years ago or mm. 22 years ago and what, what's interesting is that you know at, at the time that it was blown down once again local people said that it was you know the fairy folk of the hill who had called up the storms to knock it down. So there was still that you, sense of the planning permission, the consensus planning permission. I haven't noticed them saying the same thing about uh, storm was blowing down the cross on a sheep ball. Well, that's because they haven't, have they? <laughs> no, not as far as I yeah, know. So. Mind you, a few years ago, just so that this is still quite modern, I, mm. I do remember shortly before I arrived, there was a wonderful art scheme that took place. Mm. But the trouble was it set up all sorts of residences. People didn't like mirrors being put on the hills. Yeah, it was... It was supposed to reflect that idea of the beacon fires yeah, going from hill really to hill. It's a really good idea. Mm. But it wasn't just the older people, it was younger people. Everybody got very uncomfortable mm. about this and started to talk about strange happenings. Mm. These sort of customs yeah. are only just below the surface. Absolutely, They're yeah. still there in the landscape, whatever yeah. you make of it. Yeah, yeah. It's quite interesting. It is, yeah. Um, but of course, I wanted to, what I thought was really interesting to talk about was the unofficial dig that took place in 1931, the one and only time yeah. that uh, the Shebeg Cairn has actually been excavated mm. and it was a um, back in 31 in fact the, the protection late, late 1930 it started I it think. was yeah, sort of yeah it was December time. 30 January yeah. 31 yeah now at the time the protection the archaeological protection had only been of ancient monuments only been put in place in 1930 yeah, during very, the same year yeah so very very so it really hadn't got time. through to mm. Well, actually, rules and regulations, yes. nobody takes any notice of them for years after yeah. they come in here. Exactly. But, I mean, it still would have been, you know, the local historical society or whatever it was might really might not have known about them. No, they probably genuinely, genuinely. didn't know. Yeah. And the Ballinamore Archaeological Society yeah. decided that they were going to go and explore the cairn. Mm. But they went in, as usual, at the time. Then They weren't alone in this. No. They went in through the top. Yeah. And they dug down through the cairn, basically wrecking the through shape roof, of it, yeah. through its roof, which was a dreadful thing to do, but they mm. did. And they dug about a seven-metre hole. A huge big trench right down the top. You know. Which now was why it has a collapsed top. Yeah. Until they came to the basically the cairn inside. The, the now, I mean, burial I could, chamber. Maybe the best way for me to describe what they found was actually to read um, a piece from the Irish Times dated the 6th and 7th of January, 1931. Mm -hmm. Today, um, in the company of a local farmer, I climbed up from Keshkarrigan to the mound that's known as Shebeg, the hill of the little fairies. <laughs> Actually, that's a bit weird, isn't it? Well, it's, it's for one thing, it's the small hill of the fairies. Not the hill of the little fairies. <laughs> no, but also the fact that he's described it as the climb from Keshkarrigan is obviously a serious wuss. What is the Dublin man? Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, below us, the lakes of Leitrim were crowded with skaters. I love this. Mm. Men and boys whose homeward journey from Mass on the twelfth on twelfth day. He says the twelfth day. Yeah. Twelfth night, really, yeah. I suppose he means. Was made remarkable by the fact that every lake by the roadside had its thick coating of ice. Mm. The steep spiral of the Boreen which we trod was like a sheet of glass. Actually, that's what stops that's us cool. getting up and down every year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I come winter, we get trapped up here for a week. So, And when we reached the farmhouse... Farmstead, we were glad to stop for a breather. Hmm. We left this building and by devious routes, he means across the hill, yeah. uh, climbed further up the hill until we stood on the grass-covered cairn which topped Shebeg itself. Starting from the top of this mound, the two amateur excavations dug a shaft for 12 feet down and there came upon the hollowed-out portion of the shell itself. Within this cavern, a stone slab stood nearly one and a half feet thick and measuring over 12 feet square. It was supported on five stone tapering pillars whose tops seemed to be sunk in sockets in the stones above them, below them, so, yeah, above them, sorry. Below was a similar gigantic stone and on it rested side by side the complete skeleton of two people, both facing the east. Do you want mm. to go, da, da, da? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, they, they, they didn't really know much about it in the oh, 30s. God. And even recently, it was so unusual to find skeletons, whole skeletons. And laid out full length. Laid out like full that. length in a Neolithic tomb. Because yeah. it's, I'm right, isn't it? Generally from that period, it's either burnt Well, yeah, I mean, ne or... Neolithic um, burials are nearly all uh, cremation. And or at least disarticulated yeah, skeletons. Bits of skeletons from a lot of yeah. different people all put in together. Exactly. And then when you get into early Bronze Age, then you're talking about the crouching, the yeah, fetal it, it, position. It, it, but uh, no, no you, it just you, doesn't fit. You don't get sort of people laid out full length like that until quite late it's in archaeological Iron Age yeah, time easily. onwards. Yeah. But now, what what there have been, I do know. I can't give you details. Yeah. I'm not going to go into complete archaeological records, but I do know that. Uh, um, Iron Age or later skeletons mm. have been found in Neolithic and early Bronze Age tombs. Now. Yes, yeah. Uh, they found them in Sligo. Mm. Uh, they found some near. Um, no, it wasn't. It, it wasn't Newgrange. It was Darth, wasn't it? Oh, one of those in yeah. the excavation. I think at Darth, yeah. or maybe it was some of the outliers at Newgrange. Mm. But they have now found this. It yeah. seems quite not common, but it certainly is a feature of the Iron Age. I mean, for one thing. They weren't necessarily building great monuments themselves, but they clearly had a fascination with the monuments that were already in the landscape. Yeah, there's a lot of evidence to show that the the, um, the Iron Age period was a very strange one. Absolutely, yeah. There, yeah. And one thing we've noticed, and I think we talked about it a little bit with Maka, didn't we? Yes. With the archaeology of, of uh, Navan Fort. Yeah. And the strange things that were found there, or we've talked about the roadway at Corlay. Yeah. And what few Iron Age artefacts there are mm. all show a sense of um, nostalgia. Yeah. Almost like this uh, looking back to a golden age yeah. in the days in the days of dreaming. Yeah. And the stories when they talk about the she and the Tour de Donnan, yeah. they're seen as the fairy folk. Absolutely. At yeah. that point, they are the people of the Hollow Hills. Yes, yeah, they are the ones who inhabit all of these monuments, of course. You know, and so it's 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 almost like this kind of you know imagined ancestry who you know must have had supernatural powers in order to have created 
these great monuments. And that's why I put in my made-up story yeah. the idea of a chieftain yeah. being buried in the old way exactly. as an extra honour, as yeah. something special. This was a special person, yeah. someone who was honoured as being someone different mm. or having connections, almost mm. to have been as um, magnificent as an ancestor. Exactly, as one of the legendary heroes. Yeah, yeah that he was a legendary hero, mm. born again or come again or mm. like them, and uh, may have had a special honour of being laid. Yeah. Now, we don't know. No. But it fits with a sense of nostalgia. Yeah, and, and with that kind of anomaly, you know, of, of an Iron Age-style burial in something that is, you know, a much, much more ancient mm. monument. And, again, if you can imagine 2,000 years ago, we tend, we tend to think of the past, particularly the distant past, as kind of quite homogenous and all, all the same. Mm. But 2,000 years ago the people living in Ireland then were as mystified by the origins and functions of all of these monuments that really are all over the place in mm. Ireland. You really cannot plough a field without unearthing some kind of monument. They were perhaps even more mysterious mm. and, and, and still dominated the landscape. Yeah. And so they were still very... The Hollow Hills, they yeah. were the people. Uh, and don't get wrong, the fairy people mm. were not little people with wings. No, don't God, no. ever get that idea. No. They, I mean, it's amazing how they, you've got this other people, this mm. other race of people yeah. who have... You know, the stories of the Dodonna and their mm. great skills. Mm. And now they were living with them, unseen. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. They're like invisible neighbours who, who you really don't understand, but you have to respect. And therefore, who could appear and disappear mm. and be... And maybe you could find yourself a bit like the Greeks and the way that they, people were fathered by gods all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it's quite similar. Mm. It, it feels like that from the stories, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, But nevertheless, finding two skeletons laid yeah. for that. Now, as usual, they were of gigantic length. I have a lot of stories that I've gleaned from neighbours and various mm. people who I'm not going to name, <laughs> um, on, who live on the hill or have lived on the hill and people. And uh, I've learned a lot about what it was like at the time. I do know a bit more about this. They found the skeletons and they removed them. Yes. And they took them down to... Well, they were they were put out and they laid out in a cow shed or yeah. a, an outbuilding down the road. And I do know I have stories I've heard of certain young people in the area who were charging people a penny a look. Yeah, to go and see... Quite the a lot of money at the time. Gigantic skeletons, yeah. Um, and uh, there's another story. Of January, I think it was the 7th, it's actually in one of the papers... Mm excavator lost in tomb <laughs> because it was so icy one of the young men who was involved in the dig fell mm. in and they couldn't get him out <laughs> and he was very young at he was only about he? 17 yeah yeah um now funny enough a few years ago i met the man who yeah. fell in i was talking to an old man in the village oh he says i remember that and he told me the entire story yeah. of what it was like to fall in and i said can you remember what it looked like because there's only an artist sketch of what the insides yeah. are tomb. It must look like the ones you can go inside on the brick leaves. Well, exactly, yeah. It is like a other passage tombs, one would imagine. Yeah, the, description, the description of the stones and is the very pillars, much the yeah. same in the pillars. Yeah. But it must have been really scary but because he, the yeah. entrance wasn't opened. I know, and he was there overnight as well, wasn't he? I don't think he was there all night, but they took yeah. him a lot of time to get him well, out. Well, yeah, yeah. So I said, can you remember the orientation of the tomb? You didn't know what no, I was talking about. no. 
he said, no, I just wanted to get out. Yeah, exactly. He thought it was a bit of a laugh, uh, <laughs> you know, was uh, until he fell in. Yeah. Uh, and what happened was, of course, when Dublin heard about it, mm. it was an unofficial dig and they came and closed it down. Yeah. And nothing is said in the papers of what happened to the skeletons. No. I mean, it caused huge crowds to turn up. And uh, the local paper, oh, well, the papers were very good about it and didn't talk about it like the local papers did. Mm. The local papers went, ah, oh, we look upon the bones of Fjall and Grania. Yeah. And, uh, you know, here we see the beautiful Grania, even if she was just a skeleton. Yeah. And again, they're, they're, you can be pretty sure that they weren't looking at them to determine whether they were male or female or anything of the sort. No, so it's always said that there was a man and a woman. Yeah. But I actually can't find any archaeological or um, even reliable evidence to no. say this. But everyone locally said it was a man and a woman of gigantic size, yeah. of course. Which, like which they is, always are. Yeah, that happens with a disarticulated skeleton, though, that it, it, it ends up appearing much larger, you know, because the bones are not joined together anymore. So when they're laid out, and all of the soft tissue has decomposed then yeah, yeah they do look bigger but and I also know the sad thing that uh, apparently eventually when the bones were left there mm. in the outhouse the woman in the house says oh I'm not having those bones yeah. in my outhouse they bring bad luck on the place yeah and they were tumbled back in the cairn and the cairn is closed up exactly yeah. and it won't be reopened no well it can't be there may be listeners who aren't so familiar with what we're talking about with a passage tomb but essentially the way that they were built is that the entrance was if you like on the same level on the same mm. plane as the burial chamber and that the burial chamber is domed sort of upwards so it's uh, a technique known as corbeling where it's a uh, gap at the top is narrowed and narrowed and narrowed mm, until you can put it. one stone at the top so that's the the roof structure but because the way they dug was just to go straight down they have utterly destroyed that Structured roof. Yeah. So, it is tragic. And you can tell by the shape of the top of the cairn. Yeah, yeah. That it's it now saucer shaped. Exactly, yeah. And uh, it's possible that the whole corbeling has collapsed inside. Exactly. So it is an extreme tragedy. Mm. But you see, to be honest, though it is mythologically interesting, yeah. they are to a penny. And yeah. as I discovered later, that they're only protected to a distance of 100, 100, 100 yards, around. I think it was. Yeah, yeah. And there's a house not far from it now. Oh, absolutely, yeah. The, well, about ten years ago, there was a lot of building coming right the way up the hill. So, you know, yeah, they are very, very close. But not that it stops us standing on top of the cairn whenever we feel like it. Uh, no. <laughs> but it is a good story. And certainly that was a time when they thought they looked upon Fionn and Grania. So it's a very, very persistent legend. Absolutely. Of course, I haven't said much about Fionn. Who was Fionn? Tell us a bit about the Fenioch. Well, it's one of the main bodies or corpuses of, of Irish mythology. It's often cited as being a later cycle, the Fenian yeah. cycle or the Fenioch. That's because most of it was oral. Exactly. So it was still being told, so it was only quite relatively late when it was considered suitable literary material. It was sort of almost like the stuff of the people, wasn't exactly, it? It yeah. was the oral tradition. If you like, in England, it was the Robin Hood stories rather yeah. than the King Arthur stories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but the stories are just so full of ancient motives. And yeah. And, and, the, and hunting their, their stories of the forest. Exactly, the... yeah. I mean, the, the, the Fianna, as they appear in those stories of, of film, are very much, you know, a, a wandering war band um, who were supposed to spend all their time between Bialton and Samhain. So the summer half, they'd be out hunting and um, presumably 
keeping enemies away and the like. And then between Samhain and Bealtaine, so the, the winter half of the they'd year, be at home. they would be, well, they'd be put up by the settled people. You know, you know it's very hunter-gatherer, isn't it? Is it is very. No, this yeah. belongs to a future Well, and a whole series, let us say. <laughs> a whole yes. series. This is not yet. Yeah, we want but, to do a whole one. They're fascinating. They are. But in, in very broad terms, Fionn is essentially given as the great leader of the Fianna, although there probably were many different Fianna. Fianna is just a wild band or a war band. War band, war, yeah. Band. A band of men, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's quite... A, a gang. Yeah, it is a bit of a roving gang, really. Although they may have well <laughs> served a purpose in terms of, if you like, policing the wastelands mm-hmm, in between mm-hmm. Tuatha. And they tended know. to be attached to... Uh, to a particular, to a particular area. Uh, uh, and they weren't always kings in their own rights. They don't have that sort of no, sense no, of no. being a chieftain. No, they, they were quite... I mean, one of my ideas about it is that it may well have been, you know, young men, young unmarried men who mm. were kind of sent off into the wild to go and prove themselves, you know, and do all the wild things that young men are, you know, wont to do before coming back and settling. Mm. So, for know. instance, it's a bit Fionn... like national service almost. <laughs> yeah. you know? The Fionn we know who is often attached to King Cormac. Yeah, well, again, there are different versions of different Fionn yeah. stories, but Fionn is kind That's of... just attaching he, famous yeah. people to famous people. Exactly, yeah. Fionn McCool, or uh, Finn McCovell in Old Irish, mm-hmm. is uh, he is the archetypal leader mm-hmm. of the Fianna, you know. But I think that it may well be that there was a local Finn for every local Fianna. Well, of course, the stories of Fionn mm. turn up in Scotland, they turn up in... There are a lot of them in Leinster, yeah. as you pointed out. They're in Kerry, In Kerry, yeah. Yeah, and of course there's and a strong tradition. And, strong, and of course we've got a strong tradition here. Yes, yeah. So that's why in my story I imagined a, a great leader... Mm. Um, definitely a Fionn type yeah yeah um kind of special mm, well I mean it is it is again unlike other uh, story cycles it is very much kind of belongs to every part of the country mm-hmm. you know it's it's not so much rooted in one particular stronghold yeah. or one geographical area or one people if you yeah. like very national and uh, mind you even in the well-known written versions of mm. the later written versions of Fionn I still don't reckon he'd have been likely to have been buried with Grania in that <laughs> case no um, there's one of the well-known uh, longer tales of, of the Fíniacht is the the Thoriacht Dogs Grania which is the pursuit of Grania and um, it's quite possibly it forms a template for the continental medieval romance of Tristan and Isolde, mm-hmm. which again is to do with a, a young woman being betrothed to an older man in power. Even Deirdre Nisha. Yeah, yeah. But so that the young woman has been betrothed to someone who's, who's much older than her. And essentially, she's not particularly keen on the marriage and somehow or another becomes involved with a much younger man. And tends to lead the way. Yeah. She tends to initiate it Exactly, as well. yeah. And so then they have to leg it and they get pursued by the forces of, of the older man in authority. So the Torah to Yermund Douglas Grania is that Grania kind of chooses Dermot, although Dermot has previously chosen to have a love spot put in his forehead that makes all women fall in love with him. So how it's Grania's fault... <laughs> did he choose that? Yeah, he did. He chose that as I a was, boon from a fairy woman. I always thought he... Uh, my story, uh, I tell Colin Whale, he, she pursues him. No. And after that, he chose to keep it covered. Well, he might have... Cho- the thing is that the, the, sto- the version that I know 
now, um, which is Connors of Four Year than Yeah, yeah I'm sure you're right. I probably um, it, it was something adjusted he, he the chose. Story. He chose it as a boon from a very one, but of course, pretty quickly found the trouble that uh, was incumbent upon him. Once, have, you know, every time any woman saw him, they fell swooning at his feet. Yeah. Oh, dear Wood. Yeah. Which was great the first time. It wasn't bad the second time. Yeah. It was kind of fun the third time, but after that it got boring. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So why it's then, you know, this this wicked Gronio who runs away from the she mighty young... She No. Well, That's what they all say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so... Mind you, nevertheless, it's a very interesting story because almost everywhere in the country and again in Scotland, you mm. find these beds of Diamond and Gronio. Yeah. That all the, the the old the dolmens, dolmens yeah. are known as the Labba Yermadugus Gronje, and yeah. they were. It was always said that they weren't allowed to um, eat where they'd slept. They yeah. had to keep moving. Exactly. So, I mean, it's 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 interesting in terms of the way that stories interact with the landscape. You know, because the pursuit does cover it covers the whole island yeah. and all kinds of different places. And then in many so. places, it's said that you know, if a, a, a woman goes there with a young man, she mm. cannot refuse him anything. Yeah, which yeah. sounds like a good excuse to me. It does a bit, although. But the, there must be something. Yeah. The fact that these stories turn up everywhere. But anyway, after the whole pursuit, that Fionn chases Dermot and Grania all the way around the country. In the end, you know, while pretending friendship for Dermot ends up kind of letting him die. Yeah, well, they end up living on a hill. Yeah. Um, not so long far away from here. No, it's in Sligo. Sligo. But it's only within, well, I mean, I work past yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Keshkaran, yeah. which is interesting. I think that maybe have got people confused because yeah. they hear Keshkaran and this and is Keshkarrigan. But it was Keshkaran with wonderful caves yeah. on the hill of Keshkaran, which are prehistoric mm, caves. Mm. Brilliant looking caves. Yeah. But they said they lived up there for 24 years yeah. and grew and actually had a family yeah, exactly. up on there. And then after he died, well, yeah. uh, there's a local guy but which gets a lot of stuff wrong <laughs> uh, it, it says that Fionn's girlfriend was called Deirdre, Deirdre. which is completely wrong <laughs> but it does say the fickle Gronje returned to Fionn I don't believe no, it no no I don't I, believe it I don't believe it either so yeah I, I would see it as highly unlikely that Gronje would have gone back to him after all that but I mean, he was for a start he was old when they were betrothed yeah yeah you know? uh, there's there's more there's more Fionn stuff around yeah here. there's a great giant stone up on Schlieven Aaron. Yeah. Only once again you're beginning to go north and the, suddenly Fionn is becoming yes. a giant. Yeah. Yeah. Although I think there's Fionn fingers down in Kerry and uh, you know some yeah. other places where you have these great stones. Mm. And this massive stone at the top of a mountain yeah. I have to say um, Schlieven Aaron is about 2,000 yes. metres I think. In Irish terms it is a mountain. Yeah. Is it metres or feet? 2,000 feet. I do get yeah. mixed up unless yeah. I go and check it. It must be feet. It <laughs> yeah, it must be. Meters. It can't be metres. No. <laughs> no, that would be rather yeah. 2,000 feet. That would be an actual mountain that as would opposed be, to would an be Irish mountain. 2,000 feet, yeah. yeah. It's it's higher than Shebeg, put it that way. Yeah. But up, up half, not on the top because that's eroded bog, but near the top there's these stones. And it's said that if you put your hands into the indentations on the top of the stone, you'll receive the gift of stamina. Yeah. I think by the time you climb to the top of Shebeg, and you probably already Demo- Demonstrated your stamina, yeah. yeah. Um, and the, the other thing is, there are lots of stories about where Fionn died. There's mm. not one place, but there's a place over the other side of the country somewhere in... Alvray or yeah, they, And he's killed by five knives yeah. or five spears. There, there are various stories. Mm. But there is no story about where he's buried, although yeah. there are many places, but there is no burial story. Yeah. And it reminds me a bit of the Arthur stories. Yes. Like, And there's a line from the Welsh Triads, which I'm only going to do in English, yeah. which is not why the thought a grave for Arthur. Yeah. And in fact, it's, you know, you, you don't talk about where the grave for Arthur no. is in the same way as you don't. Fionn's grave yeah. is, he's something of a once and future king yeah, again. Exactly, he, that he's, he, he's gone asleep somewhere and he'll come back again. He will return. Yeah. You know, this is as good a so called burial site as, any as ever. Yeah. 
Now, there are other legends for the hills, aren't there? What about the really good legend about the battle? Oh, yes. And this, oddly enough, fits into the story, I think, as well, because there is a story that back in the days of the Fianna, there was a great battle between the two hills, or the two tribes of the two hills, or well, the, two, but, the two Fianna's, really. Yeah, well, between this Fianna and their mortal enemies, who were the Fianna who lived on the next hill. So you're talking about two rival war bands. Absolutely, Or two yeah. gangs. Yeah, yeah. Two factions. yeah. And uh, a leader from both sides was killed. And yeah. the leader from the Fianna mm. uh, was, was buried on Shebeg. And yeah. the leader of their mortal enemies, it yeah. says, was buried on Shemur. Yeah. And I think because it said the leader of the Fianna was buried on Shebeg, it's assumed it's that it became Fionn. Yeah. Yeah. But the interesting bit is it says that, uh, and when the mortals were forgotten, mm. the immortals, the, the, the fairy folk, the Shia, continued mm. to, com- um, to, commemorate to commemorate this battle. great battle. And what, twice a year they would fight the battle again. Mm. And once a year the fairy folk of Shemur would win, Mm. And once a year, the fairy folk of Shebeg would win. Yeah. And it's very clear from just the way the story is told that the, the, the it's Bielton and Samhain. It has to be Bielton yeah. and Samhain because all the battles are fought at Bielton and Samhain yeah. in all the stories. Well, also, you know, if, if you stand on Shebeg uh, at Samhain, then the sun will set over Shemore. And if you stand on Shemore at Bialtana, the sun will rise over Shebeg. Funny enough, there's a weird little sheepfold. It's not mm. one of the marked um, Neolithic sites, but it's very clearly a Neolithic site. Could on Shemore. On Shemore. Yeah. And if you stand at that point, mm. and no other, if you mm. go lower or higher, the little shoe brush that is at the top of <laughs> Shebeg, the little point yeah. on the top, the cairn, mm. which is because it's got ivy and gorse on it, it yeah. looks like a little shoe brush is exactly at the sunrise level, yeah. which is quite interesting. Yeah. Again, I'm not making too much of it, mm. but there is definitely a, this balance between yes. the two hills, this resonance between the two mm. hills, which mm. is great fun. Yes, yeah. And that whole, it's almost that kind of deliberate fairness, you know, that one side has to win and then the other side has to win. Yeah. And this goes on forever. Yeah. It's a lovely story and mm. it's one to tell at Bieltona and and of course that story of the battle between those two fairy hosts in Shemore and Shebeg mm-hmm. uh, is where we get the well-known O'Carlan tune of Shemore and Shebeg which is also known as the Fairy Queens um, and comes from that very oh, story. No. He's, he's a local hero he is really, he's commemorated all over the place oh, in this yes. area. Oh yeah, Turlock O'Carlan is definitely, he's definitely one of ours. He wasn't born in Leitrim was he? No, he was born in Nobber in County Meath in 1670 mm-hmm. uh, but his whole family actually moved up to Ballyfarnan, mm-hmm. uh, which is just the other side So he's commemorated Kiju. in there, yeah? Yeah, exactly So, but that was only when he was only 14 mm-hmm. so he was, uh, that was 1684 and uh, his family, his, his father particularly, were working for the McDermott Row family, mm-hmm. who were one of the big families mm-hmm. in that area. The sligo area. Yeah, yeah, kind of South County Sligo into Roscommon. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. That sort of uh, not unclear county boundaries around there, I think. And in fact, at Lasser as well, there's a, a big um, tribute to one of the McDermott Row mm-hmm. women uh, in, in a plaque up there. And of course, let's say you must mustn't forget that that's where a Carolyn is buried. Too. Exactly, is is just across the road in Kilronan. Kilronan, yeah, uh, cemetery. Um, so very, very strongly connected with this area. Um, so it was O'Carlin was fourteen when he moved up there. Apparently, the the lady of the house um, began to educate him. Mm-hmm. Um, was he blind at that time? He no, had smallpox. Didn't it he? was smallpox that blinded him, but that wasn't until he was eighteen. Right. Of yeah. course, I knew it was sometime in his teens. Yeah, exactly. So you know, he he had been sighted up up until that time and had started his education, but it was after he was blinded that he was apprenticed to a harper. 
And that goes in with this tradition. You know, most cultures have a tradition of um, professions that are suitable for people with various disabilities. Mm. More recently, uh, it was definitely the, the the thing to do with a blind person was to give put them into either physiotherapy or telephony. <laughs> and that's up until, you know, my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, but back in the... Now it's like old part Irish. Of, of, yeah, no, well, no. <laughs> that wasn't so easy, was no, it? No, no, no. But back in, in the late 17th century, there was clearly still a tradition of um, blind people going into music mm-hmm. and particularly harping. Mm. Now, O'Carolan's very often cited or termed the last of, of the Irish bards. And what that is referring to is the tradition of the bardic schools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the bardic schools emerged (coughs) really, it's quite interesting, in in about the 12th or 13th century, which in linguistic terms is when we move from Middle Irish to early modern Irish. Mm -hmm. At about that time, the monastic system in Ireland was changing. Basically, the monasteries were becoming more connected with the continental orders and as a result they weren't so interested in the native body of learning because that had always been quite a difference something we said before yeah that the irish monasteries were were not like the english or continental continental monasteries they they were really a continuation of the schools of learning the native Mm. schools of learning but when they became more influenced by the continental orders, that meant that the native learning was not so highly prioritised. And that's when we see the emergence of the bardic schools mm, as mm. a means of perpetuating um, particularly the traditions of Irish poetry. Mm. And so from about... Which had been so central to the monkish yeah, traditions exactly. earlier. Yeah, yeah, that they were very much core to the, the monastic systems mm. of, of, of learning. Which again was a big difference. Yeah, yeah. So you have this separation then in the time that that we would call early modern Irish in linguistic terms. And then you, you do get a flowering of bardic poetry mm. between the 12th and about 16th, 17th centuries. And uh, bardic poetry is incredibly complex. It has, you know, tremendously involved systems of of rhythm and of rhyme and of language. Um, it's something that my old professor from Trinity, Damien McManus, has done. Uh, he's he's now digitised a lot of bardic poetry and mm-hmm. made that available online. So the bardic poetry is one of his big things. But really, those schools they were largely supported by the aristocracy of the time, mm-hmm. uh, which would have been uh, it's what's sometimes termed the, the Gaelic aristocracy. Now, there were, of course, aristocratic families who had come over from Denmark and from Normandy, but it was very much, they were very much assimilated into mm. Irish culture. Yeah, yeah. And so they, they were supporting the Bardic schools and, you know, commissioning um, poetry to commemorate members of their patrons families. And yeah, they were, they were the patrons of, yeah. of the day. Um but at the beginning of the 17th century, so 70 years before O'Carolan was even born, um, was the whole business of the flight of the earls. Mm-hmm. And essentially the um, the Gaelic aristocracy, the Irish aristocracy, was falling to pieces. It actually collapses, really, It collapsed that from that time. And then, of course, you had the Cromwellian invasions yeah. of the 1650s, which... By that time, you've got Elizabeth really, and the yeah. plantations and... The, exactly. So, yeah. so you're beginning to see a real uh, disintegration of the, the native structures of society mm. and of culture. Um, so O'Carolan is really a bit of a, an anomaly almost. It's interesting that Breffney, which is yeah. South Leitrim, yeah. was a stronghold 
absolutely Gaelic ways long after everything else had collapsed yes to the point that it was considered no man's land exactly yeah and the McDermott Road family safe to go go past um oh was it um Drumlish oh yeah get further than Drumlish (laughs) after that oh dangerous yeah that's right they tried setting up even Carrick on Shannon yes was set up and then it went native yeah exactly (laughs) Jamestown that went native yeah 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 so you know it's it's really a time of tremendous change in, in mm. Irish culture and society. And so the fact that O'Carolan, um, you know, began his uh, poetic and, if you like, bardic and musical career in the, the late 1680s, you know, this is really long after a lot of those traditional schools. I was wondering why, why it happened in, would have happened here. Exactly. When it might not have been able to, it was a very old fashioned area. Exactly, yeah. It wouldn't have happened within the pale. No, sure we're that. well beyond the pale Absolutely, here. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and I don't even think, you know, if you went further south or even further west, mm. but this was a little bit of a uh, a grey spot on the yeah, map. Yeah, an in-between place. Mind you, it still is looking at Google Maps. I know. <laughs> yeah, no bad thing, no bad thing. Um, so, yeah, so it was only when O'Carlin was, was 18, so we're in the late 1680s now, that, that he began his uh, career as a harpist. Um, but by the time he was 21 or 22, he was obviously well enough rated as both of those things. When, when he wrote She More and She Beg, it was supposedly... It's an early piece. It was 1692, it? so he was, only, he was only in his very early 20s. Mm. And there are some stories to say it was, it was suggested by his patron, um, George Reynolds. Yeah, George Reynolds is supposed to have told him the story. Exactly, yeah. Now, I love to tell the story of how one sour night after a bat... He was a bit of a drinker, <laughs> Carolyn, by tradition. Yeah. And after a dr- uh, overdoing the drink, he went up on Sheep Beg. Yes. And there he heard the wild victory music of the Queen of Sheep Beg, and it inspired him to write the music. Yes. I suggest it was quietly suggested in a, in a rather pleasant drawing room. Well, yes, and it, it, it might but even... it's a good story. It is, it is. It might even have been an early commission, because, of course, there was the same patron, George Reynolds, who's credited with putting up that monument to Fionn mm-hmm. on top of Sheep Beg. Mind you, there is... A story, it's a Sligo variant, and mm. I have heard that he was out walking one day when he met a fairy piper yeah. who played such beautiful music that led him to Shebeg, and it's that music, the music of the fairy piper, that became the tune. Yes. I Actually, it's a very continental type of... It is a bit, but O'Carlin was what you might call a character. Um, it's known that in his later life he, he associated with, with such uh, luminaries as um, Dean Jonathan Swift, mm-hmm. uh, who was very wily and witty and uh, quite satirical in his way. Oh, yes. yes you know? he was a bit, wasn't he? <laughs> if, if you don't know about uh, Jonathan Swift, Google a modest proposal. Yeah, and not, not Gulliver's Travels. No, no, no. <laughs> Google a modest proposal and you will find out what sort of a character Swift was. And so O'Carroll may well have been one of those self-mythologizers. Mm. You know, and particularly if he was kind of um, maybe deliberately exploiting this now gone idea of the, the wandering bard. Mm. Yeah, because it's always said that he travelled round on a donkey. Yes. Well, again, um, that's very likely. It, it just is, like Lady Gregory. Yeah. But, but without it's, the harp. It, it's true that for for centuries and probably much yeah. longer, those blind people have used animals, whether they be um, dogs, donkeys, horses. Or wolves that, in your case. Well, yeah, well. <laughs> Not a wolf. No, Zolda doesn't have a wolf. No, no, no. Just looks like a wolf. Yeah, he's just an Alsatian. But, um, but, just. <laughs> But yeah, so it's a very big Alsatian. So it it would have been very common for a blind person to use Not quite a big as a donkey to to use a donkey or a horse as a guide, effectively. Mm. 
Um, Don't and... try getting a donkey into the caravan, will you? No, 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 no. <laughs> Although I, one of these days I will, I will get a, um, a, a trap pony trained up, you know, to drive me around. So this was O'Carolan's life anyway, was to go through uh, from big house to big house mm-hmm. and be commissioned uh, to write both music and poetry and, and songs, essentially. Uh, apparently, he would compose the music when he was travelling. There was quite a lot of it composed for people in this area, wasn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, yeah. Planksteen Maguire yeah. and, and all of those. Yeah, quite well-known pieces. Exactly, and they're known as Planksteen. Planksteen uh, is basically a, a piece of music that is written in honour of a particular person. Yeah. you know. And so when you think about even you know the, the continental system of, of artistic patronage, it's not surprising that so many of yeah. the pieces that O'Carolan wrote uh, bear the name of his patrons yeah. and, and of notable, and it's certainly still very much connected connected with uh, Shebeg. Yeah, well, it's it's certain that he started his career around here, you know, and mm. it is not that far between here and Kiju Valley Farnan, yeah. where he would have had and his education. Let a fine house is now gone. It is. You can only. But there's some wonderful old trees. Exactly. Where it was. That's the only indication that there was ever a big house there is actually the trees. Big goes, oak trees. Yeah, goes back to Austin Clark's poem of the house of the planter is known by the trees. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's very much like that. So we got mm. we've, we got left with the trees, mm. but it's an interesting story. I remember years and years ago we had a visitor from us, uh, no America here, and who was sitting up in Shebeg, and he said, "Well, of course it's not the Shebeg, is it? <laughs> I won't see anyone you're going to get. Yeah, this is the Shebeg. Yeah, you know, because often people will know the music. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and um, it is it is well known and loved. Again, O'Carolan doesn't really, he's not wholly of the traditional school. Of Irish music, he uh, was very much influenced by the the art music of the continent. But that's what I meant about yeah. the rather gentle rhythms of Shimor and Shebeg. Even. Yes, yeah, you know that that it, it has a lot of the kind of the dance uh, rhythms that you would get in Bach, and rather and than the, the wild like. victory music of the Queen of Shebeg and yeah. the Queen of Shimor. But it's a beautiful piece of music. It is, and I mean, it it says a lot that O'Carolan's uh, tunes were even published and printed within his own lifetime, mm-hmm. the beginning of the seventeen hundreds. Now. Of course, he, he settled in Mohill, or near to Mohill. That's why there's a statue of him in, 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 in the Playing a harp with no strings. Yeah, there, there's a few different theories about why the harp has no strings. Uh, it's partly because it may have been one of Oshin Kelly's last sculptures. Another one of his oldest. Well, he's got a family connection. <laughs> but he has a more direct family connection to uh, Fergus Kelly, who wrote the Guide to Early Irish Law and Early Irish mm. Farming. So he, he's a much more direct family connection to them. But um, but yeah, the, the statue of O'Carroll in, in Mohill is possibly his last mm. statue. Mm. Do you think that's sculpture. why, almost like the it, no strings? Yeah, it might have been unfinished, or, or was it just difficult to put strings in? Exactly, there are di- there are different there are different theories. But uh, it was only when O'Carroll was fifty, the, in seventeen twenty, that he married and then settled yeah. near Mohill. Uh, had seven children with his wife, who was Mary Maguire, and she died when they were only married thirteen years. Oh. So I would say it's a pretty good hill to live on, really. Definitely. Um, it's got great views. Um, what do they say? They can see, what is it, 14 lakes and, and five, five counties, counties if you stand on the top. That is when it's not raining. Yeah, or misty or cloudy. Or... Mind you, you get some beautiful nights, particularly, oh, yeah. standing up there at night with the stars wheeling round above mm. you. I love this place for its clouds because mm. they're never the same two minutes later. In fact, who was it? It's not O'Donovan. It's one of them who was going... What, asked about Leitrim, mentioned that it has the most variable climate in the whole of (laughs) Ireland. Variable weather in the whole of Ireland. And of course, we do say that if you don't like the weather, you just wait five minutes. 
Yeah, I, I've seen, you know, wonderful nights when there was one night when for no reason the clouds suddenly broke in uh, just a hole, like a circle, mm. right over the top of the cairn and yeah. then sadly it spread and the stars began to show from this circle. Yeah. Just some sort of weird cloud, cloud yeah. formations you get. Of course, we still like walking up in the cairn, especially in the dark. Yeah. And if you know the way, it can be a bit weird, can't it? You know, we just get up there, up to the gate, then walk up the hill, then over the stile. Yes. And then you've got to sort of, there's this, this gooseberry on the hill, as it was once described, <laughs> this little bump on the top of the hill with its trees and its gorse. You've just got to aim for it. Yes. And, and hoping that the, uh, that the light from Shimor down below you mm. or across from you, will you can just about see that shiny cross just like a little pinprick and keeping a row of trees on your right because yes. you can get quite lost yes you can and there there are some rather steep dips around the place that and, can do you a bit of mischief and the occasional cow and oh, a yeah. lot of thistles yes some years more than others but one of the things we used to run workshops on celtic mythology and uh, get people inside the stories and playing with the stories and and this became one of the traditions mm. ancient tradition that's been going on all of 20 years yeah um, so every Samhain, people come back and we do a bit of dart walking. Yes. We said we collect an item of value from each person and then send somebody up to sit on the top of the cairn. Mm -hmm. And the idea is you go out in pairs and... In uh, the dark. In the dark, without a torch. Mm. Uh, always in pairs, just for yeah. safety's sake. And the first thing you have to do is go up to the top of the cairn and collect your item from the person who's guarding the top of the cairn with a torch. Yes. Which actually just adds to the atmosphere, especially <laughs> if the person's holding the torch upwards under their chins. Yes. And uh, then the idea is we've also sent out a quarry. Oh, yes. Uh, somebody who's hiding on the hill. Yeah. And the idea is to hump for the person who's hiding on the hill and prevent them from getting back to the fire at the house. It's essentially a big game, game of hide-and-seek. And, seek and nobody cares about the, whether you'll catch the quarry. The Some really people do. Well, yeah, but that's, they're the ones who get lost. I know. <laughs> Except for, no, we've never had the quarry go to the pub, have we? I don't know. It, we had one of the but, hunters once go to yes, the pub. Yes, yeah, yeah. Which was more an adventure, I think. Yes. But uh, it's just a way of getting people to enjoy walking on the hill without a torch. Yeah, and really enjoying the darkness because there, there is so much light pollution, even in relatively rural areas now. But it isn't there. Yeah, exactly. You can actually get used to the darkness and how it feels, really. It, yeah. Again, it does make you more aware of your other senses and how to navigate your surroundings. So I would say that the Hill of Shebeg is quite a special place, what we enjoy it. And going back to the story that I put at the, the beginning, it's a, an imagined image yeah. or, that combines a lot of the legends. Yeah. And who knows, maybe once upon a time that two Fianna's fought and one leader was buried in that camp, because certainly somebody was. Oh, yes. And it had to have been a someone important, someone important and, and much later than when the can. Yeah. So people must have seen that place as very, very special mm. for a very, very long time. Yeah. Well, what I do is on the uh, blog, I'll put up some pictures of Shebag and yeah. I'll also put, put up the artist's impression of what it looked like inside, taken from, from the, the newspaper article. in yeah. 1931, and maybe a couple of paragraphs from... Uh, letters from the various papers yes. back then just for a bit of interest we're not as you know putting up a lot of supporting evidence no. or, or background material for these specials yes because we're busy working on the next series of Voitura. exactly but until then thanks for listening and i hope you enjoyed sharing our conversation thank you for listening to ogle of nanagas 
Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.